Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 251 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is December 17th, 2012. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. Coach Harvey Hyde is on special assignment, so we're going to bring in CBS Sports National College Football writer Bruce Feldman, so he'll be joining the show a little bit later on, and we have... Our beat writer, Dan Weber, will be coming up in the first segment talking about the USC football team and how they're getting ready to play Georgia Tech in the Sun Bowl. we got a bunch of questions to get to. If you have any questions or comments, you can always email us, podcast at uscfootball.com, or call us at 206-888-6755. You can also go to peristylepodcast.com and leave a voicemail there on the left side of the page, or you can even tweet me if you want, at troy. All one word, at Inside Troy, send me a, a tweet, and we will play it on the podcast and get to your question. And like I said, Dan Weber's up in the first segment. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Uh, two days off uh, between weekend uh, practice uh, and uh, next week's practice before they leave for El Paso. So we got uh, got a little time to talk. We do. We have some time to talk. And there was uh, So there were a couple of bowl practices, and they took a week off. And they've had two bowl practices over the weekend, and they got a couple more days off. There was some talk yesterday in practice about, you know, the the timeline for hiring a defensive coordinator. Probably not going to happen until after the bowl game, and not really changing anything on offense. But I wanted to play you this voicemail, uh, Dan, uh, about the offensive coordinator, and then kind of get your thoughts on the whole coaching situation after that. So here's the here's the question for you. Hey, this is uh, Rob in uh, Northern California, Yakaya area. I've got a question about the offensive coordinator position um, that USC may be looking at. I think uh, you guys heard anything about you know maybe bringing in Jeff Tedford. I mean, I know he's got ties to Southern California, being a native down there, and I think he can really help out Kiffin on the offensive side of the ball, knowing the Pac-12 really well. Um, just questions or comments about that would be great. Thank you very much. Fight on. Bye bye. Yeah. I think uh, as far as our uh, uh, caller from Yukaipa, I think uh, Tedford probably would have been a pl- and Tedford was the only person I think I've ever mentioned as as a possibility for that job, other than dividing it up uh, duty wise, uh, uh, so that you know Lane has a, uh, doesn't have to hold the big play seat and and try to sequence the plays and do all the things you got to do. And, and, I mean, Lane, you know, obviously during the season noted that during games about the difficulty at halftime, for example, doing both. I mean, it's really not an, you know, not an easy thing. Uh, you know, you would like, for example, if they're getting a, you know, goal line stand toward the end of the game, you'd like somebody else worrying about the clock. Uh, or that you'd like the head coach worried about the clock and not the guy that's having to call the plays. And put the two together, for example, if the play caller you know can focus on you know how the best way to get the ball to the end zone, and the head coach focuses on uh you know what kind of time do we have and all that it's just too much I think for one person 
I never thought that there was any chance of them going outside other than if Tedford said to Lane, I'd really like that. Now, he doesn't certainly have to come back to coach with, uh, with what he's getting paid for the next couple of years on his contract at Cal. So he could take off. He can, uh, Tedford could take off. He could do TV. There's a lot of options, and, and, and I think it was totally his call. So it certainly seems like his call is, I don't need to go and be, you know, an offensive coordinator right now. And now Lane's call, I think, has to be, how do I make this work better for USC? It didn't really work this year. And uh, it needs to, and, you know, I don't, it doesn't even work in practice. I think what we, we've seen the last few days, and one of the reasons we, practices look so good, is Lane has mostly kept the play sheet you know, tucked into his belt or under his jacket. Uh, he said, hands-free, jumping in. He can see everything that's going on. He's not, you know, focusing on what's the next thing on the schedule, what's the next play, you know, that they're going to run. And, it, and I think, you know, it, it's much better when your head coach can really be your head coach. So I think I'd like to see him figure out how do they, you know, factor in T. Martin and, uh, uh, you know, Clay Helton. And, uh, and Kennedy Palomalo, who has the title. And I think there are ways that they could do that uh, that would really work during games. And I think, you know, Lane is always going to be uh, really, you know, directly involved. But, uh, you know, I wish, you know, like yesterday, practice went so well because basically they focused on USC and not so much game planning for Georgia Tech. They haven't done that in the first four practices yet. And, the practices have gone really well. And I know Lane says, you know, it's hard to do this during the season because of injuries. Or Coach Baxter said it's hard to do this because of time-wise. You don't have enough time. That's the genius, I think. And I, as I said, that's the genius of being a coach, figuring out how, do you, how are you able to most get up to game speed, game conditions, game pressure, game physicality in practice and still, you know, come out with, with your players intact and uh, and still being ready for the other team. I think they've probably, the pendulum has probably swung too far this year in terms of spending time changing things and getting ready for the opponent as opposed to perfecting what you do as a football team and what you do well and, and how physical you have to be and how fast you have to play and how you have to execute under pressure. Uh, Loved yesterday's practice. Again, Georgia Tech wasn't that much a part of it. Now, obviously, Georgia Tech's going to run the triple option. One of the good things, I think, about, you know, people don't like to play triple option teams, but one of the good things, I think, is it allows you to focus on the fundamentals, blocking, tackling, running to the play. Uh, You know, it's not, you know, Georgia Tech is going to come out and come up with, you know, six new plays out of the triple option. It's mostly – execution and being ready to play physical and play fast. So this could be a really, you know, a good thing and a good preparation and the kind of thing this team needs to be doing right now. So anyway, that's, that's my take on offensive coordinator. I think, you know, the, you see the guys who are going to be the offensive coordinator. They're still here. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely been different first couple of days of practice. So I think that should be encouraging for uh, USC fans. Um, Let's go to Tarion, and he says, when Coach Kiffin and Pat Hayden make their year-end evaluations, several coaching issues, including those you have discussed, appear obvious to a lot of the fans in the media. During my 30 years as a business exec, uh, 
when you and your staff are unsuccessful, you get feedback and complaints from all quarters. So does your boss, uh, and so does your boss. Uh, you're expected to make changes and alleviate all those concerns. And as a coach, you have an obvious metric of your performance, wins and losses, but they have input from the media, alumni, and fans as well. My question is, whom do the head coaches and ADs get there, get the input from, and do, and what input do they feel uh, compelled to react to? That's from uh, Tarian. Well, I think that's, you know, Tarian, that's a good question, and that's, uh, uh, I don't think we know that, and that's the kind of thing, you know, they're, they're not going to make that obviously public. Uh, you do know, for example, there were some of those games at the end of games, the way things were going, and we were up in the press box until the last five minutes, but you could be down on the sidelines and you could see some mighty big frowns among people who, uh, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, high titles in the administration uh, and who have a big time football backgrounds. And they were down there on the sidelines and they were mightily displeased with the way things were going. Uh, one can't imagine that that hasn't been communicated and, and not necessarily in terms of, uh, do this or do that or, you know, bring this guy on or get rid of this guy or stop. The, but just in general, you would think that uh, anything that you and I have probably said, well, maybe not what I've said, but anything that you, you might have said or thought has probably been communicated in some way, uh, you know, to the coaches. Uh, I don't think there's any question. I don't think it's just an accident that we're seeing them practice the way they're practicing. And we see them talking about can't do this during the year, but, you know, now, again, my feeling is you've got to figure out how you can do this during the year. You can't use the 75 scholarships. Uh, might be a reason to fight for getting the scholarships, uh, you know, returned uh, right away based on what we you know, know with the NCAA. But the, the thing that you'd like to see is um, uh, just, as practice went yesterday, you know, whether we'll ever know what kind of communications have been going on, uh, what kind of feedback, what kind of, you know, this has to stop or this has got to get better. Something looks like it's changed. Uh, the rest of the time, we'll see. Now, when they start game planning, I think Wednesday, they're going to start game planning for Georgia Tech. And we'll see how they divide up practice and the tempo and the pace and, uh, all of that, you know, is this going to be a team that's going to go forward and still only try to run 60 or so plays a game and be the fewest in the Pac-12? You know, just think of the difference. Uh, you worry about, well, we can't, you couldn't get the ball to Robert Woods last year. You know what? If you'd have run 100 plays a game like Arizona did, you'd have had 40 more plays to get the ball to Robert Woods. You'd have had 40 more plays to throw the ball to the tight ends and to the backs you'd have had time to do a lot more uh, than essentially, you know, target, you know, Marquise Lee. I think that would be a good thing. And I know, you know, everybody talks about the numbers, but the other part of that is the talent. If you've got talent like that, it, it's kind of a, a not a good thing to not be using it, not be getting enough plays so that, you know, you can distribute the ball around for your um, your good players. And you can say if we go, oh, we got issues with the offensive line, we'll fix them. You know, yesterday I thought that was some fix. I there were people who came out of it yesterday watching those board drills thinking, whoa, we've got more guys that look like they can block people physically than we realize. This, uh, 
wow, that looked good. Well, yeah, we'll do it. You know, they really need to figure out how to do that uh, every day at practice somehow, some way, at least, you know, twice a week or so, uh, the Tuesday, Wednesday practices. And uh, that's what's been, been missing, to be honest. That, that's been the, the, the missing element here um, this year for sure. I agree with you, Dan. There's a couple of good points I wanted to follow up with. Uh, one, with the number of plays. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Like, if you're a good poker player and you're playing against better I mean, you're playing against worse players. You want more hands. You don't want less hands. The fewer hands, there's more luck and stuff involved. The more hands you play, when you're a better player, you have that percentage edge against them. And I think it's the same thing with USC. When you have better athletes, you want more plays against them than, than fewer. And uh, but, You know, yeah. I, I, and here's a, a difference in two sports where they play, you know, uh, uh, major events and they have great players, but they're way more... Uh, upsets way more guys like you say who the heck is that in golf why because they only hit a few hundred shots in a tournament tennis it's the same guys the same guys you know it's it's uh you know Federer and Nadal and, and Murray and those guys you know or Serena they're going to be there at the end of the a tournament why because they hit like 10,000 shots well if you hit 10,000 shots over a tournament the better players are going to be you know end up on top and that's where I think, you know, I think people are fascinated by the fact that Lane's teams have never come from behind to win. And we watched Saturday, you watched Arizona do to Nevada even more what they did to USC. And you think, huh, Rich Rod gives himself a chance to win games like that because he runs 100 plays. you got more chance to have something happen at the end if you're running more plays. And you can do them quicker, and you're used to it. There's just a whole lot of benefits, it would seem to me. And protecting, I don't know that you can go into a season. I think, you know, Lane cites the um, failure to hit on that 87-yard play they drew up on the sideline to uh, Robert Woods in the Arizona game. But I always, I always thought the, the biggest problem came in a fairly decent win, 24-14 win at Washington, when – Lane kind of talked about to the players they were not happy at all. Uh, you know, Barkley and Woods and Lee, and when they basically put the ball in the hopper and said, you know, we got a lead, we're going to hold on to it, no, we're not going to do it anymore. And that, and he talked about you know roster protection. We're going to protect our roster, and we're just you know not going to take any chances and not going to take any shots and all that. And that was almost like a concession speech, I thought, uh, kind of a white flag waving a little bit. And I'm not sure they ever really got themselves together uh, on both sides of the ball for a whole game after that. That was, uh, that was a, a moment that I, I think if, if I were going to say take a moment back, it, was, it would actually be a win where they basically didn't try to almost do anything in the second half. And, and with the talent you've got, if you've got the best offensive player in the Pac-12, uh, and a lot of people say the best offensive player in the country, and you're not going to try to play offense for a whole half because you have a 10-point lead, uh, mm, I don't know. Doesn't look good to me. <laughs> a lot of teachable moments uh, from the 2012 <laughs> USC season, I guess you could say. Uh, the other one, one quick thing on that, too, is uh, for Tarion. Uh, if you look at some of the best organizations in the NFL, they don't succumb to pressure of what's going on with the fans. I think it's a little different in college, uh, but the, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots, seems like that aren't 
saying, oh, the fans want this, so that's what we're going to do. I mean, if, if Jacksonville trades for Tim Tebow because the fans want him, they sell jerseys, I mean, that's fine. They can do something, but that's not a winning organization. So I don't know if you necessarily want USC to just uh, buckle the fan pressure. And it's different in college because you have boosters that are, you know, fans that are paying stuff, you know, they're putting a lot of money into the program. So I think they, they definitely have a voice. But I don't know if you want that you know Pat Hayden to just go on whatever the whims of the fans want. He he, they have to trust his staff and his organization to to figure out what they need and and go forward with that. I think. But I do one place they do come in, and I thought this was really interesting. And, and I'm going to do a piece this week on it when the with all the stats in now for the uh, college football season. That if you throw Cal out because Cal had a brand new or a new modified, you know, redone, rebuilt stadium and had played all around the year before, you throw Cal out. And I know somebody posted it, but I don't know they went into all the details. USC and UCLA had the top two increases in attendance in the country. Nobody, uh, and to give UCLA credit, they started from a much lower place, but. They, they increased attendance by 21%. USC increased attendance by 18% to 87,000. USC right now is like nine, number nine in, in the nation, you know, at 87,000 plus a game. And that matters. And that was a lot of that was generated in the offseason, the preseason. And uh, I think they need to figure out, you, it's, you know, that's important. I think for a program – like USC, that figures, you know, we're, we're an all-time great, you know, college football program with a history. We put the most guys in the NFL and all the things that USC has done. They need to keep that buzz going that, and generate that excitement, and, and especially now if UCLA is, uh, is on, a, you know, the comeback trail. So I do think they factor in that way, and I think the kids notice that, and that's, that's something that, uh, you know, you can say, well, one year is kind of a blip and blah, 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 and you go from there. But I do think it is important to, you know, to keep them involved in, uh, in you know, this is a program that, that's going to get it together. This is a program that, that uh, is, uh, you know, on top of its game. And they may give you one year off, but uh, you really got to – this is a big year in, in, in that way of engaging, the, you know, the fans of Los Angeles and saying, you know, we've got a, pro- you know, we got a product and, and we want you to, you know, come out and, and support it. Okay, let's go to Martin. Um, he had a question about the offensive line. Uh, it's kind of long. I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it. He says, after listening to the podcast and hearing about how poorly the offensive line played this season, uh, and they, there's talk about possibly replacing the offensive line coach because of the poor line play, it reminded me of a video I watched where uh, Brian Billick explained the small differences that can show up uh, during gameplay. And then he kind of goes on to say about Andre Walker at the left tackle position, Lane Kiffin put him there because of his size, but was he really suited? Is he more suited as a as a right tackle? And then you know the the play where uh, Matt Barkley gets hurt and 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 the sack happens and things like that. He kind of goes on about that. Could it be where it's it's a situation that you know it wasn't necessarily that the offensive line played bad, but they were kind of put in a bad position, and the offensive line coach he's talking about James Craig in this situation was kind of forced to to deal with that, maybe putting a square peg in a round hole or something along those lines. What, what did you think about that? Yeah, I think that's all <clears throat> part of the picture. Um, you know, for example, if you don't have enough time to really do basic, you know, if you got a, you know, at least uh, one new, new 
part of the offensive line, no matter which way you go with a freshman, Max Turk or Andre Walker, and you don't really have enough time to, uh, you know, do all the fundamental stuff like yesterday. Uh, uh, and maybe you've got a whole heck of a lot, like uh, 135 plays in the play playbook, and, and you don't have a lot of flexibility, as it showed in the, uh, you know, the Stanford game, where you know they get themselves in the jackpot. Were they doing the right things at Stanford? No. I mean, you know, sometimes you're going to get two players hurt uh, the week before, and unfortunately, it was at the same position. Could they have handled that better? You darn right. And did they do a, you know, a good enough job on any part of the coaching staff that week? No. Or during that game? No. Uh, so, they, you know, there are other things they could have done they didn't do. They need to have more – I mean, what I'd like to you know, see them, obviously, is be a little more basic, a little more fundamental, and a little more able to adapt to changing situations in games and to changing situations week to week. Uh, it's as if they've got a situation where if one piece of the puzzle goes down, the whole thing, boom, is gone. You know, and and that's that goes for blocking schemes and everything else. They need, I think, figure out a way to be a little more, to look a little more like a college football team, and uh, a little less like they're trying to be an NFL football team. I think that's a that's a big part of it. I mean, they were handicapped from the beginning when Andre Walker basically missed all of August practice. Now, here's a guy who never lined up on the left side of uh, you know, the ball in his life, never put his left hand on the ground, was very uncomfortable doing so, uh, and then playing at this level with the level of complexity that USC uh, you know, has on the offense, and that was a recipe for absolute disaster. So that never came together. It was one of the reasons why, even against the – weaker opponents with fairly, you know, big scores, you never felt good about this team. Uh, and you never felt good about the offensive line. And whether that was, you know, the offensive line's fault, whose fault it was, uh, you never felt like they had a go-to play. You never felt like they had confidence that they could run the ball when they had to. There were games they could run the ball, but – uh, did they have a go-to play at the goal line, as the Notre Dame game shows? They they didn't. Uh, you know, were they physically tough enough? They weren't. Uh, there were some injury issues there, and you know, I don't. You know, Colin Holmes has gotten a lot of uh, postseason uh, notice, but he was he, he was fighting, you know, injuries that didn't let him practice very much at all, and uh, that was hard. That was uh, th- there were some difficulties faced by this offensive line that they didn't overcome. Uh, and they need to overcome them. But, uh, you know, exactly, it wasn't just like one guy, one coach, one player. It was a whole lot of things. And they need, I think, to work more on player development, more on, you know, getting guys ready to play, getting more guys ready to play, ha- having more flexibility in uh, in what they're doing. And, if you know, if, if bad things happen in a game, you can still adjust to it. And you never had that sense that, that they were – kind of masters of their own destiny because they they really weren't. Yeah, if a game started off poorly, it pretty much was going to continue. (laughs) I mean, Utah, they turned Utah around, but usually it was once they start off bad, if they they weren't scoring a lot of points early, then they probably weren't going to score a lot of points. Yeah, like the Utah game, I think, was a good example of of college, you know, just not being able to practice very much. You know, uh, he just – you know, it's amazing he accomplished what he accomplished and amazing, uh, you know, 
He's still, uh, you know, some rankings have him still the number one, you know, uh, NFL draft prospect at center and, you know, first team all Pac-12. So gives you an idea of of what his talent level, you know, would be, uh, you know, were he able to, to be physically uh, physically ready to go. But I don't think as a group they were physical the way they need to be physical, the way a USC line needs to be physical. It was like the, uh, you know, Matt Khalil leaving, who now clearly you watch the uh, watch the NFL and you think, hey, guys, there's a reason Adrian Peterson's almost, you know, at 2,000 yards. And it isn't all of a sudden Adrian Peterson is a different player. He's got a different left tackle who, as a, as a rookie, might be as good a left tackle or might be better than any left tackle in the league. So that tells you how good – Matt Khalil was, and you know how good Red Ellison was, and they had the ability to get Red to the point of attack. So that made that offensive line look a lot better, probably than uh, than than they were going to be with four, even with four guys back. And I wish they would have done more things to try to get those four guys and whoever was with them up to a a higher level physically and execution-wise. And if they had to simplify things and had to, you know, really focus on, on the physical part of it, then they needed to do that. And I don't think they did that. It, it, it looked like they just kind of went on as normal. And uh, I don't think, as, well, the results showed. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, <laughs> they weren't dependable. I mean, they, when you have an offensive line that you can't be sure uh, how they're going to do, and yet still somehow – you know, Barkley wasn't sacked a lot. Now, the trouble was, there's a couple of games where he got hit, he really got hit. Stanford and, and then UCLA, to, you know, put him out for the year. But uh, uh, it was a spotty. It was, it was hard. You know, if you looked at the numbers, you'd say, well, they still didn't do a terrible job in giving up sacks. And they didn't. Some of that was Barkley's being smart about it as a senior. And some of it was, you know, they may have done a better job in some ways than or Barkley got rid of it all awfully yeah. quick. That may be why you didn't see the ball go to Woods, because after the first read, that ball was out of there. Uh, so those, you know, you look at a stack, sack statistic, and it might not tell you as much as you think it does. Um, all right, well, let's, we got a few more to get to. This one's kind of long, but I'll read it for you. It's uh, from Kevin. <laughs> he says, among the other things with the USC program that seemed to regress in 2012 – so did Lane Kiffin's play design, not play calling. He said, though, that seemed to, to regress as well, but design. So he gave a couple examples. One in 2011, first play I saw against Colorado was ingenious. Marquis Lee was split out alone in an unbalanced set and was motioned into the backfield. SC then ran a swing pass to Lee, and his motion pulled the corner closer to the ball such that the tackle was able to reach said corner and open up the outside for Lee. As I recall, Lee scored from midfield on the play. So Kevin liked that one in 2011. But 2012, he said the list is long. Most recent example remains fresh in my mind. Every goal line set ran in the second half of the Notre Dame game resulted in the same thing. Two tight end eye formation where the fullback is motioned out of the play to the side with no wide receiver every single time. As he never tried to do anything with the fullback when he was run off the sideline. And we tried a few times to run up the middle without the benefit of a lead blocker. These are just examples, but I remember having this thought several times throughout the year. Is there any explanation of how a coach's creativity seemed to decline? Was it a lack of focus, poor preparation regarding the opposition? I've had a hard time believing that Lane Kiffin lost intelligence, but I cannot figure out 
What happened here? Please help Kevin. Wish we could. I think that was the key question of the entire year. What was the disconnect between the last five games of last year, last six games, and this whole year? I mean, you kept waiting for them, you know, okay, you would say things like, well, can they start where they finished up the year before? They got almost everybody back, as we said, with a couple of notable exceptions. Well, they couldn't. Well, could they get there sometime? They couldn't. Could they run some plays that, you know, where the execution looked and the design looked similar? No, they couldn't. You know, could they run those formations where you had, you know, teams had to account for um, uh, Marquise Lee all the way to one sideline and Robert Woods all the way to the other? And you thought, there's no way. they they got to pick one or the other. They can't. They can't double double them both or bracket them both, and if they do, they're going to be so wide open in the middle, uh, you know, that they'll they'll take advantage of it with a tight end down the seam. Why that never happened? Now, you gave away a little bit of maybe the answer in the first question because you talked about how on that Marquise Lee the, the left tackle came out and made a play, uh, and and you know freed him up, and that was the kind of thing that I don't think they thought that the, uh, the left tackle was going to be able to come out and make that play. So that's part of it. But, uh, but how they, you know, lost the, uh, the ability to be as creative. I mean, the second half of last year, they, they pretty much didn't run a whole lot of bad plays. And it really looked like they were sequencing plays so that they were setting things up. Uh, you know, the old, old Norm Chow stuff from way, way back where something you did in the first half sets up something you do in the second half and the people don't even realize you're doing it. Uh, didn't see that much. Uh was watching the other day in, in the Arizona game, and they, uh, was it Nevada, runs run the, the, the bubble screens and smoke screens, and they ran a few of them on 189-yard drive. And then all of a sudden, the, after running them a couple of times, uh, they come out and the, the lead uh, blocker on the double, you know, with the double wide formation uh, uh, runs at the safety, acts like he's going to block him for another double screen and fakes the block and then takes off. And he's now wide open and the easiest touchdown, you know, of the year. And you think, huh, well, that would be a good play call for a team that we know that likes to run a lot of bubble screens. And very often he has Marquise Lee and Robert Woods on the same side. Either one of those guys might be a pretty good, uh, you know, guy to because they're good blockers. Might be a pretty good guy to fake the block and uh, and take off. But didn't see that either. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wish I knew. I wish we we knew what seemed to happen with the play design where they did seem to be pounding, um, you know, the square peg into the round hole uh, and trying to do things that didn't look like they were going to pay off or didn't look like they could do them after, you know, showing you. I mean, the, the games that uh, uh, Oregon last year, they just couldn't. Oregon had no ability, you know, to stop them. Now you can say this year, well, Oregon couldn't stop them this year either. It didn't matter. Uh, but uh, it just looked like they were more in control of uh, of their own fate on offense last year and more had a, had a feel of the game. This year, it looked like there there wasn't much feel in the way the games went, and um, and it was like hoping that the next play would be a good play, as opposed to a sense of, you know, we really know what we're doing. I mean, I just think, for example, the Arizona play that we cite all the time, 
the 87-yard potential pass, TD pass to Woods, a play they'd never run before, <clears throat> never practiced, threw it up during the game. That probably isn't the way, you know, on an 87-yard, you might do it on shorter stuff or you might change the route or something like that where a guy, you know, comes back and tells the coach or the quarterback and you adjust that way. But on a play like that that you're going to look back and say that was the play of the year because we didn't hit it, that looks like you're just playing grab bag and hoping that something hits. And that's probably not the way to put together an offense. Probably. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Uh, all right, well, we've got a couple more. Let's go to Ben. He says, USC has been characterized in the press this year for being predictable on offense and for underperforming offensively. USC uh, tries to run what is you know an NFL style of offense. There's a growing trend in the NFL to use more no-huddle, fast-break offenses without running quarterbacks to prevent substitutions and, and coaching between plays. Are there good reasons for USC not to join this trend if not will enhance the team in recruiting to follow this this rising nfl trend that's from ben you noticed huh okay <laughs> i think you aren't yeah you're not the first one to notice that if you're going to run an nfl style pro style let's say offense you're more likely to be running no huddle shotgun with a veteran quarterback like uh you know a peyton manning a tom brady uh, <clears throat> guys like that who basically, you know, sit back there and, uh, you know, call the plays uh, and don't let, you know, the defenses do all kinds of situational substitution and take advantage of your veteran quarterback and his good arm and and a bunch of good receivers. And you can still run out of it, but you basically don't need a fullback, which gives you another receiver. And on a team, if you've got, like, oh, I don't know, like Easley and Robert Woods and Nelson Aguilar, and a few tight ends, that might be a way to go. Just just a thought. And you could actually bill it as pro-style offense. It's pro-style. That's how they're playing in the NFL right now. And one would have really liked, for example, perfect time I thought would have, to do that would have been, <clears throat> take you know, bite the ball, take the chance at the Stanford game. <clears throat> you don't have your first two centers. <clears throat> excuse me, you need a guy that can, you know, then you go shotgun. You don't have, you know, uh, your quarterback within, uh, you know, an arm's reach of, of a guy who's going to grab the center and throw him into your quarterback as he's trying to get away from uh, from the snap. Um, uh, I think creativity uh, would have said that's a really good way to go. And you ha- you would have probably had to turn the game much more over to Matt Barkley which I thought, you know, was the goal this year. Um, so, uh, heck of an observation, and one, we don't know where that'll go this year now. You've got a brand new, you know, whichever way they go, they're going to have a new quarterback. So, uh, uh, if you couldn't do it with Matt Barkley, can you do it now? I, I just think they do need to get the quarterback out from under center more uh, and, and, and do more no huddle. I, I just think... It's probably hard to do no huddle with 135 plays, and <laughs> where you've got you know the wristband, the quarterback's wristband has like uh, uh, little tabs so you can find the page on it when you flip it over because it's got so many things on it. And you got it. You got one thing you do know to play quarterback at USC, you've got to have really good eyesight 
because there are a whole lot of things <laughs> on that wristband that you got to be able to read. Uh, so that would be my goal to see more of, you know, simplify it, do what Peyton Manning does. Oh yeah. Or Tom Brady. That would be what I'd like to see. All and right. Then, and then one last wise guy there, but, uh, oh, no, but, that's fine. Uh, one last one, Dan, before we let you go, uh, question on Silas red. What's the latest if he's going to declare for the NFL draft? And I, you know, he looks at you like he says, I'm not even thinking about it. It's what most guys say. Uh, I, I wouldn't even imagine he would think about it. I, I, where would he, you know, where would he be on the NFL draft? I mean, you know, guys like Jonathan Franklin barely make the top 20. Uh, you know, I, I just think, I mean, it's a, it's a craft suit, I think, that running back position for the for these NFL draft guys. But, uh, I, you know, I'm just not sure off of this year, Silas Red. uh, uh is in the kind of a position. I'm not even sure. I've got to go take another look at that. Some of the, you know, USC juniors, like a Morgan Breslin, obviously Roby, guys like that, or and Robert Woods. But uh, I'm not even sure where they're ranking Silas Red. But but that wouldn't be, you know, a, a thing. I, you know, you'd really want to be, you know, focusing on right now. I, it just doesn't seem all that realistic unless it, you know, unless that was the predetermined. Uh, uh, you know, his predetermined goal was one year and gone. And I never got the sense at all that that, that was his situation. And he always, you know, seems, seems like a guy who really wants that USC degree and really likes it here. So uh, we'll see. He had a heck of a practice yesterday. So uh, he looks like he's really feeling feeling really good. So we'll see where, the, you know, where this goes. But it wouldn't be uh, my number one, you know, focus on, you know, what's uh, Silas Red going to do? All right, Dan. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming on the show. I know we went a little long, but we had a bunch of questions to get to. Thanks for thanks for that, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you again next week. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. All right, and everyone else, back in 30 seconds, talking with CBS's National College Football writer, Bruce Feldman. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We are back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Got a very special guest, Bruce Feldman of CBS Sports. He's a national college football writer joining the show. He knows a lot about the USC Trojans living out here in uh, La La Land in Manhattan Beach. So we like to talk to him every once in a while. We haven't had him on in a while. So thanks for coming on, Bruce. What's up? Well, it's good to be out with you, Ryan. I'm glad... uh... I'm glad that there's always football to talk about. There is all that. I mean, it, it has it changed. I mean, I, there used to be even you know five years ago there used to be more of an off season, and now it just doesn't seem like there's one at all. Yeah, you're right. I think some of it started with all the the craziness with the conference realignment stuff, and I think you, you add on to that 
with, you know, because there was obviously like these scandal stories, whether it's players getting caught with agents or just different things of guys getting in trouble. And I, I think part of it is we have so much more accessibility to uh, to players, not just being the media, but just people in general. So you hear from them on Twitter, you hear from them via Facebook and different things. And I think recruiting is only heated up because now, you know, as you as you all know, it's 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 365 days a year. So there's, you know, I remember about eight years ago, maybe maybe more than that, I started doing a, a blog for ESPN.com and. You know, one of my friends who also covers college football said, there's no way you're going to be able to write all year round, though, are you? And I said, well, I'm going to see. And sure enough, there was always something. That wasn't a day-to-day, but it was I could write twice a week. Um, And I think that's now a lot of people do because I just think there's always something, especially if you cover nationally. Now, if you cover one team, I think sometimes it's really hard to, to manufacture that. But just there's always something around the country or people are interested in it, too. So, you know, that kind of drives it as well. Yeah, the coaching changes and you know, recruiting, I think, is being covered more on a national level. There's more outlets covering it. It's not just like the Rivals.coms of the world. I think more people are talking about it. And, and, and the other thing is you have guys on Twitter that the recruits are on Twitter and the people that you know cover the teams are following the recruits and that they can talk about things. So when they're doing the summer camp circuit and there's more, I think, information coming out, like you said, with social media and, and more people covering it and just kind of you know, as it gets people talking about the team again, when some four or five star recruit in June, you know, has a great showing against some other four or five star recruit that might be going to the rival school or something like that. Yeah, there's plenty of speculation, and and you also got to keep in mind, like you know, spring football. Basically, if you live out here, it may be just primarily in in uh, April. But in other parts of, you know, in, in Texas, it really heats up in late February. And, you know, obviously it's going on in March. So I, I think there's always stuff to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, years ago, I used to cover college football and college basketball and some other stuff. And really in the last, you know, five or six or seven years, it's really only been college football that you can focus in on because it really has become, you know, a, a kind of a full-time grind. All right, so just so people know, uh, Bruce Feldman is on Twitter at, at B Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N-C-B-S. So you can follow him there. Uh, how many how many followers you got? Let me take a look. You got 120, almost 125,000. Let's get him to 125,000. He's just short of that. So uh, hopefully the maybe the podcast will put you over the top, Bruce. I would have, That would be nice. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's okay. No, That's a lot. I, I think sometimes we get a little too caught up in our own numbers, and I was – I gotta say, I was kind of crushed when I heard that people could buy followers. I remember the that Sarah Phillips scam story that started about a, a year ago, and I guess she had like sixty thousand followers, and then people start it started coming up that uh, you know tens of thousands of followers she was buying them, and I was like, oh, people can do that now. All of a sudden, it just kind of makes you go, oh, it's just a number. It doesn't really mean most of it's or a, bu- a big chunk of it's probably spam anyway. There's a, yeah, there's a, it is just a number. You can buy them. Um, there's a, there's an app out there that actually tell you how many fake followers you have. So, I mean, I even, I looked at some people and it seems like eight or 9% of people's followers are fake just in general. And then if you've bought them, then it's going to be a lot higher than that. Did you buy yours, Bruce? I did not. I did not. <laughs> I would prefer to just buy, buy you drinks, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's sweet talk. Hey, that's good. Save your money for Twitter followers. Give <laughs> <and laughs> me more drinks. Um, well, I, want, I guess we can start getting into some of these questions here. And we, we did ask people to ask you questions on the Peristyle on uscfootball.com and on uh, Twitter. 
So uh, at B Feldman CBS and uh, I'm at at Inside Troy. So some people tweeted that. So I'll kind of read some of these questions here. Um, I guess the most general one, this is from Tony uh, from the Peristyle. Uh, what are your thoughts on why USC's season went the way it did from preseason number one to a seven and five season? And what is your outlook for next year for USC? And if Marquis Lee, you think is a legitimate Heisman candidate for next year? So I guess it's like three questions, but there you go. Yeah, I think, you know, you have to start with the coaching. I mean, look, it wasn't like, I know Barkley missed the last game, but it wasn't like there was like a USC's depth issues got hit with like an epidemic of, you know, five five linemen went down or anything like that. I mean, I know there were some nagging injuries here and there, but that happens pretty much everywhere. I think you looked at it, though, and you see just so many penalties and so much uh I don't know, just call it lack of focus. And you had some pretty good experience. I mean, you know, obviously Barkley is a four-year starter, and, and T.J. McDonald's been through a lot, and and uh, Nickel Roby's a three-year starter in, in Woods. You you got good leaders. Collett Holmes. Now, Collett Holmes' injury, obviously, at Stanford was a, was a big blow. But, um, you know, you just look across the board, and I just think it comes to kind of head-scratching things where you saw a, a team that just lacked some focus a lot. And, um you know, whether it was penalties or bad clock management. I mean, you know, being at the Coliseum when USC was playing Notre Dame, I'm sure if you were a USC fan sitting in the Coliseum, it was maddening probably to watch the way they were handling the clock and some of the play calling. I mean, look, everybody questions play calling when the the team loses, whether that's Nick Saban or, or Lane Kiffin or whoever. You know, but it's easy to second guess. But some of the some of the the little detail things, and I think from a from a big picture sense, there were so much distractions and drama kind of around the team, and a lot of it, whether it was the silliness of the deflated ball story, or whether Lane voted USC number one or not, with the whole USA Today thing that really seemed kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, there were so many the injuries, and Scott Wolf gets gets sent into the corner or whatever that whatever happened there like it was just really a weird year and I think you know from talking to people around the team one of the things that I remember saying is you could say all right that stuff really doesn't matter it's about what happens on the field it certainly doesn't help because all you're doing is you know you're adding more stuff for the players and and look USC's players you know you've been around them even more than I have but you have a lot of a lot of kids who are really sharp kids who are pretty dialed into what's going on. I mean, look, USC puts their Twitter handles, you know, on the you know, in press releases and on the scoreboard and everything, and um, so they're you know they're aware of what's around there. I think they know, oh God, here you know, like oh this happened, and it's not like they're going to have to defend some kind of weird situation on the periphery. But I, I definitely don't think that stuff helps. I just think it it just adds to to things and and you know in reality is you look and you saw I think what they beat if if not for Washington that was the only team they beat with a winning record I think or yeah. you know maybe there was one other but you know pretty much any pretty good team they played they lost to and um, considering preseason number one with that with the star power they had that's that's pretty inexcusable now to get into the other part of the question. I think Marquise Lee is a legit Heisman guy. Um, you know, to me, he was as good a player as there was in the country. I think if he had a better game against Notre Dame and they won that game, I think Mark, Marquise Lee had a shot to, to take, overtake Manziel to win it. You know, people were watching, and, and not to say he didn't, you know, have a good game, but 
you know, there were three penalties where the freshman cornerback for Notre Dame covering him got flagged. I think all three would have been touchdowns, you know, and they prevented them. And, you know, maybe it looks different, looks differently after that. But um, USC is going to have to be better than seven and five. If, if he's going to be, if he's going to win the Heisman next year, I think what's encouraging is and one of the few bright spots in the month of November for them was you looked and you saw Max Wittick looks like he can be a big time quarterback there. I mean, obviously everybody knows he's got a big arm. I thought he, he, he played, you know, I know he made, he made a couple of throws that they would have loved to have had back, but by and large, I thought he was a bright spot and uh, you know, I think they have a chance, but, We'll see. I mean, you know, they have some question marks. You got to find a new defensive coordinator. I think that uh, you know Lane, as a play caller, left a lot to be desired this year. And Lane running, you know, as a as a game manager guy. And uh, you know, we'll see because that was with a with a guy who was a largely experienced quarterback. And now all of a sudden, it's it's basically to a, to a guy who started one game in his career. All right. Uh, thanks for that. Let's go to. Twitter uh, at GK Mizuno, he wants to know why has USC had trouble stopping spread option teams and will that repeat against Georgia Tech? I think some of it is just you have a team that that knows it has a problem with it and it almost becomes its own worst enemy. You know, it looked like the defensive line was a little tentative. I mean, sometimes one of the bigger problems defenses usually have, especially if teams that have good personnel, when things go bad, it's they, they, the players try to do too much and they, they don't trust each other, they don't trust the system or whatever when they get in the heat of the moment of it. I almost wonder if, if the USC, you know, especially against Oregon, it almost looked like they were a little shell-shocked. I mean, they struggled to sh- stop the stretch, the stretch play and, and some of those other things. I mean, Georgia Tech's a different dynamic than, than Oregon or even, or even Arizona. I mean, the passing threat really isn't there. I mean, Matt Scott did a lot of damage at Arizona. Obviously, Marcus Mariota did damage through the air against against USC. I don't think Georgia Tech, even though the the triple option by definition is not one dimensional, it, it's a, I think it's a lot more manageable. There's more time for these guys to focus in on it. I think they'll be able to handle it. Um, but you know, going forward. It'll be interesting to see what Lane Kiffin decides to do with his coordinator hire, you know, in the next month, because that is clearly an issue for them. And, uh, you know, USC has too much talent to be to be average on defense across the board. That that kind of leads us to our next question. But before I jump into that, yeah, if, uh, here's here's what I picture happening, Bruce, that, that Georgia Tech takes a shot down the field first play and then. You would go back into their cover too, just to prevent that from ever happening again, and they just run all over. No, I'm just, I don't think that's going to happen. But can you see something like that where they continue to play like a soft zone against this triple option attack that obviously is not going to be the ideal, you know, X's and O's matchup for for something like that offense? I, you know, I I can't see them sitting back like that, not against this opponent. And it's look, this isn't even a really good Georgia Tech team. You know, it's not like it was a couple of years ago. I, I just don't think the firepower is there. I think that, uh, you know, if USC if USC really shows up and look, they haven't been in a bowl game. Even if it's a, even if it's a bowl game, they don't, you know, probably would have preferred not to be in. I just don't think you'll get a flat effort. I think they're, you know, they have. They, there's no excuse to not be dialed into this. Okay. Um, well, this we have from SWR22 on the Peristyle and Gabe Alvarez at Gabe Alvarez. On Twitter, both wanted to know if you heard anything new uh, about the defensive coordinator hire. 
Um, I haven't heard too much. You know, I'm curious. I, I looked at your, you know, your hot board, and some of the names make sense. I, I, I know that Dwayne Walker has ties out here, and I know his situation pretty well because of, you know, some sources I know close to him. I mean, look, he knows that if he leaves New Mexico State, which wouldn't surprise me, I and mean, there was a there was a shot that he could have gone to Cal as well um, before they filled their spot with Andy Boo. I think that he's never going to be a head coach again. Now, he's in a really dire, you know, it's a rough situation. I mean, last year he wins four games in New Mexico State, and that may be about as, as good as you can hope it to be. Um, but you look at what, what New Mexico State has done on defense. I mean, this year they were ranked 100th. That's the best they've been in the last three years. I don't know really how, and I know he's not, you know, totally the defensive coordinator there, but I don't know how, you know, Lane Kiffin, kind of going into the year on the hot seat, I, you'd have to think, can say, all right, we're going to bring in Dwayne Walker, whose defenses the last three years have been 100th, 110, and 115th. I, I think that's a tough sell. Um, and he you know, was Mark 111. What's up? He was 111 this year, right? Well, I think in scoring defense he was a hundredth. No, I mean, he, one, I mean his the the record was one and eleven. Oh yeah, one and eleven. Yeah, <laughs> I mean just just atrocious. Uh, Mark Banker is a well respected guy at Oregon State. You know, if that were to work, I mean, you got to remember too. I mean, he, Mike Riley across the board, whether it's media or coaches, is one of the most lo- beloved figures. Um, you know, even for a lot more money, would Mark Banker go somewhere where? he could be doing a one and out because if they don't win, I think some coaches are going to look, assistant coaches are going to look at this and go, if we don't really get things turned around, especially with a lot, you know, we have a new quarterback here. If USC goes seven and five again, I may be looking for a job. Whereas he knows if he's working with Mike Riley, granted nothing's guaranteed, but there's a better chance. Um, you know, I, I saw, you know, Randy Shannon, that wouldn't totally shock me. Shannon and Ogeron go way back, you know, 20 years. And, uh, I know that he would be interested to come out to Southern California. Um, you know, he's at TCU now. I mean, he, his his resume as a defense coordinator was really strong at Miami. Uh, the uh, I also wouldn't be surprised if he ended up as the defense coordinator at South Florida with Willie Taggart. I mean, I, I don't know if that you – know, obviously USC could pay more. I don't know if if, uh, if Lane is ultimately more comfortable, you know, going that direction. And – you know, the other name that I, I've heard a little bit is Clancy Pendergast from Cal. But, again, you look at last year, they were 95th in the country in scoring. And, again, it's, it's some of this is on the players, but, you know, I talked to coaches around the league who thought Cal had, had some of the better talent in the league on both sides of the ball. Um, so, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's no easy answers. Uh, there's, a, there's two other names I've heard that I really can't get into at this point that I – think could end up in the mix who would probably be a lot better hires than any of the names we've mentioned but uh you know we'll see what happens in the next month i mean i i think you're talking about a job where usc you know given how much money monty kiffin was making i don't think they're going to spend 1.5 million but they could spend a million dollars because lane kiffin needs to make a home run hire here and get pretty much not almost any defense coordinator they want but uh get you know, go down the list and, and make a pretty, pretty big offer. The challenge is going to be, you may be offering somebody a million dollars. That's more than other people are making, but you got to remember if somebody's making 700,000 someplace else, that 700,000 is probably going a lot further in a college town than it is going to be a million is going to be going in LA, especially given, you know, Lane Kiffin's kind of tenuous position at USC at this point. 
All right. Uh, thanks for that. Let's go to another Twitter question. Mr. Warhop, did USC Lane Kiffin get too dependable on Marquise Lee? It seems they forced a lot of plays to him. It did look like it at some point. You know, the the what, what's going on with Robert Woods stuff in November definitely, I think, got a lot of people's attention. And I think that that's, you know, that's a risk sometimes schools run when, you know, anything, when you get a little too much of a good thing, sometimes it's like candy. You can't, you know, you can't live off it, you know, ultimately. And, and you know, I would believe that a little bit too. But, um, you know, I think other teams would, would be aware of that and just try to take it away and take it away and do everything. But then there's the other mindset where, you hear this in basketball sometimes, let so-and-so get 40, we'll worry about the other four guys, they're not going to beat us. And I think that, it, you know, in a weird way, you know, I mean, USC's biggest problems I don't think were were offense. I think it was a lot broader than that. But if you look at some of the games they played when they're like one for 13 on third downs or just struggling to, to, to move the chains, I think that does speak to a little bit of a, of a almost being too one-sided and uh you know i think that's something that lane kiffin and that staff has to i'm sure they will self-scout and try to figure it out going forward but um and you can't blame marquis lee for being you know the best player in the pac-12 okay let's uh, this one's from real conquest on the peristyle he says nice pull ryan bruce is the best uh i i guess he was talking about you bruce i don't know maybe he was confused with somebody else <laughs> Uh, no, he said, ask him if being with CBS instead of ESPN is more like being free to run around your house butt naked, eating Ben and Jerry's 24-7, or being stuck in a room with Rachel uh, Maddows for a year and then getting set free. Okay, there's a lot of images there. <laughs> there is um, a lot. I'm going to stick, I'm going to leave leave the Ben and Jerry's and, and Rachel Maddow stuff to the side. Um the part about CBS, ultimately covering college football is college football. And I think that that's, you know, it's, it's good either way. I think the, the things that's a little more uh, easier to, to deal with on the day-to-day is just not really having to look over your shoulder so much. Not, I mean, obviously CBS is a big, big company too. And it's not like CBS doesn't have rights, you know, holder, you know, relationships with, the SEC and Conference USA and, this, you know, we, the service academies we put on, you know, Army, Navy, and Air Force on our air a lot. Um, but I just don't think there was like the, you know, kind of the mid-level management kind of scrutiny that you would get of people just saying, you know, why would you tweet about this or whatever, you know? And uh, so that kind of thing makes it, makes it, um, you know, a little, a little easier just to be, just to be more comfortable. And, and I think after having worked, you know, at a place for a long time, it takes a little bit of time just to kind of get, get comfortable to the new way of things. So, but, um, you know, it's good. And I mean, I, you know, the people I work with are really into college football as well. So it's, it's been a good process. Okay. Very politically correct uh, answer there. Let's couple of Twitter questions, uh, Trojan at Trojan714 and at C-A-H Ironman7. Both wanted to know about uh, when will Miami and Oregon get their sanctions handed to them? Man, I, I would have thought that Oregon's would have come down before, you know, the end of this year. And I don't know what is taking so long because that is dragged on. Obviously, USC's dragged on way past anybody would have thought, too. Uh, you, uh, Miami's is another one that I think will come, you know, we'll know by the spring at this point, but 
you know, it's it's an involved thing. I mean, the NCA investigation investigative process has been kind of a curious one there too. Uh, you know, I'd reported on that case and especially early in this in the fall. And some of the things that had happened there is you have some of the some of the there were three big investigators who were involved. Well, two ended up leaving the NCA, and I think some of the things that people have looked into. Are a little, have turned out to be a little dubious. I think the cooperation there, um, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen this, but like where the NCAA investigator, and this was like right on the heels of the mess with the UCLA basketball investigator, uh, you know, had sent out, it had gotten out that this investigator had basically sent out a, if you don't, to, to former players, if you don't cooperate with us, um, we are going, we're basically going to take the word of Nevin Shapiro. And, Who's the, who's the guy behind the scandal? Who's basically a billion-dollar Ponzi scheme guy who's in in prison? And I think initially people looked at that, and go, well, it's either one or the other. So you mean if you, you mean you're going to? And I talked to some compliance experts who were a little surprised at how the the NCA's tacked on this, even for the NCA, which really doesn't get much benefit of the doubt or deserves it at this point. But uh, the a compliance said, expert said, well, you're basically saying we're going to take the word of a guy who built people out of a billion dollars over some, some kid who may have taken a steak dinner. I mean, is that really what it is? And then, you know, the flip side of that is people saying, well, and the NCA's position is, well, we're not taking the word over. We're just, no, there is no other word. It's like one side saying something, the other side is, is just washing, is just turning its back on it. The only thing I would say, you know, counter to that is if anybody says to you, you don't need to you don't need to to be in part of a deposition or be in part of investigators like where you gain nothing from it it's probably a good idea you know not to because it's a really awkward process where people are going to ask you a lot of leading questions and condescending questions and i think that um you know it's one of those things where you don't necessarily have anything to gain now miami from what i've i've been told wants those player former players to cooperate and I think one of the things that they know is if they don't cooperate, those players they end up disassociated. Those former players end up disassociated from the program. And I think with Miami, it's a little different than it was in the case of Reggie Bush. I mean, with Miami players, so many of those guys who are former NFL players come back and work out in the facilities in the summer and those kinds of things. Um, some of them had, have, you know, donated money to the program. And I think that that puts them in a kind of a weird situation. So you have all these factors kind of unfolding with with that investigation, and I think that just adds to the to the lag in the middle of it of of trying to corroborate what so many allegations have been made. And look, the NCA, as USC fans probably know better than any other fan base, is a big mess. And there's no, you know, it's like basically they're making the rules up as it as it goes along and nothing they do surprises you anymore. Well, speaking of the NCAA, the most popular question we got was, have you been following the Todd McNair case? And uh, what are your thoughts? And we've had a lot of people um, ask about why is the follow-up from the national media after the federal judge said that NCAA, the NCAA acted with malice uh, towards Todd McNair. Well, I mean, as far as the national media goes, like my colleague Dennis Dodd, I, I think he's really the, the first one or the only one from a national media who really did dig into the Todd McNair. And I know you guys have, have covered it, but dig into, you know, what's going on with the NCA. He had a story about it two weeks ago that, that got a decent amount of, 
of publicity. Um, and it's, you know, it's something where we're going to continue to follow as it unfolds. I mean, look, this is a really bad look for the NCAA. And I think it's almost like, you know, it's funny because sometimes you see conspiracy theory stuff and it, a lot of times if, it, if it's not directly, you know, something you're working on or it's not something where, it's, you know, you have a direct connection to it, you think it's really conspiracy stuff. But in the case of this and from talking to sources and obviously from talking to Dennis about it, there's a lot there. And it, it, it's probably worse than what, the, what, what people would assume. You know, if, if you thought the NCAA was a, a – uh, don't use the term a cornball organization. If you thought the NCA was a was a uh, a real you know mess and a really dubious you know organization, then I think when this McNair stuff really kind of all filters out, you're going to think even less of it if that's possible. And um, you know, Todd McNair, my guess is, is going to ultimately be a very very rich man. But by the same token, he's not going to be a, you know he probably will never be a college football coach again. And I think that. Um, know the stigma that comes with some of these things it's hard to put a cost it's hard to put a price on that and I don't, I don't know I mean again at this point nothing I mean anybody who read the you know read the LA Times story about the UCLA basketball recruiting the NCAA investigator or, or looked at a little of this you know the one thing I think fans across the board can agree on is the NCAA seems like it's often you know full of crap <laughs> I should quote you and put that on Twitter. That's a good <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Look, I don't I mean, just cuz I cover college sports, like I've been I think pretty pretty vocal about my feelings that they, you know, I've said this on TV a bunch of times and I say it on print. I really think the NCA makes up the rules as it goes along. And you know, it's it's it doesn't mean that there's not some aspects of 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 college athletics and what the NCA does as as entirely positive. But it doesn't also mean that some of the things are completely mind-boggling and completely arbitrary. And if you told me that certain certain power brokers who have NCA relationships and NCA favor got favorable treatment, and that's how they skew the pool because it means money or business, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the NCA is a big-time business, and I think the hardest thing for for whether it's media or or fans to kind of get around is when places say they're about something else, that that's their mission statement is about something else. When the reality is it's business, it's first business. And then the other things kind of fall in line after the business part. And that's, that's kind of maddening. I think at some point, and I, I don't think it, the NCAA is the only operation that operates that kind of goes that way, but don't try and tell us something when it's, when it's all, when it's BS. Yeah. You may do some good other good things, in the process and maybe there's there's you know people who are conscientious or whatever that are connected to it but when it's a business first you know don't try and sell us something else all right and then we got one last one well, i guess it's kind of two from i think he pronounced it sim phoebe s-i-m-p-h-o-e-b-e on the peristyle um one and this is where we can plug your latest book how do you think of what do you think of mike leach's first year at, at wsu and then uh, the second one was, uh, if you could be king for a day, how could you make college football better? Uh, the first, I will say, is, look, it was a three and nine year. I mean, they, they beat, you know, the arch rival, which was a ranked team, to end it. But other than that, it was, a, it was a big disappointment. And I think he would have to admit that if he doesn't. You know, it's 
look, they, he went 10 years and went to 10 bowl games at a program that had never been as good as it was when he was at Texas Tech. I think eventually, you know, Washington State is going to be a top 20 team and they'll be a dangerous team because they're going to be really good on offense and everything. I mean, if you can't, the issues, and I saw this in the spring when I went up there to, to work on the paperback version of the book, the offensive line situation was dreadful. I mean, if you, his best offensive lineman this year was a redshirt freshman walk-on. And I think they basically had six kids who could play the whole season. And a couple, you know, a couple of that was due to injury that happened before the year and but whatnot. But, uh, you know, they'll get better. I think, you know, through recruiting, I mean, I never remember Leach playing half as many freshmen as he did this year. And it turned out most of the better players on the team were freshmen. So, so I think that bodes well, but obviously there was a lot of awkward moments and Leach, you know, like his buddy Steve Spurrier, is not a PC guy. Sometimes he says things that make people cringe, um, you know, in terms of probably makes his SID cringe, but that's Leach. And, you know, <laughs> he's got a good AD who supports him, and I think that that, you know, ultimately makes it a, a good situation for him. But, uh, you know, it's never going to be dull with him. As far as if I was king for college football, I think one of the things I would actually do is, you know, if we're if we're kind of beholden to the NCAA model is I think the NCAA does need some kind of king to run college football and college athletics. And I don't think that's the NCAA, you know, I don't think that's Mark Emmer. I think it needs somebody over the top of the sport who has a, a sense of, of not only college football and football, but the world around it and just a common sense perspective on how the business runs and everything. Um, you know, it's funny because a couple of weeks ago I was in New York for uh, the football foundation deal where they basically, you know, honor the sport and induct people into the hall of fame and, and uh, had a long talk with Oliver Luck, who, you know, was obviously Andrew Luck's dad and he's the AD at West Virginia and former Rhodes scholar candidate, former NFL player and lived over in Europe while he worked on the, uh, the world league for the NFL. So he knows a lot about a lot of different things. I actually think he would be the best person to run college football from a from a leadership standpoint. Some of the ideas he has, you know, are are very interesting. They're ideas that I think people who, you know, other ADs who are maybe too small town or just it's it's kind of over their heads, but I I think he gets it and I think that uh you know, that's what college football needs is a guy who has a big picture understanding of, of where college football is in, you know, in 2012 going forward. And right now there's no leadership or there's, there's a big lack of leadership. And given all the turnover and transition with the conference stuff and all these money grabs and, and, you know, players being pulled into a million different directions. I think it needs somebody who can handle that. And, you know, just from my experience, Luck is luck is a he's not one of the old boy network guys. I think he's very smart. He's, he's seen it. You know, obviously his son, you know, has made the transition to the NFL. Um, and I think he has a perspective on things. I mean, if you had to ask me who would be the best guy, that would be my that would be my suggestion. All right, good stuff. Uh, you didn't mention your book, Swing Your Sword. Maybe tell people about it and uh, where they can find it. Yeah, Swing Your Sword. Uh, it's really, you know, some of it is about Mike Leach's stormy exit where he clashed with Craig James and Adam James as a 
former Texas Tech player and obviously ESPN. But a lot of it really is about uh, kind of a coaching life and a football life of how this guy who had never played college football and uh, went – he was I played high school football but never played college football, went to, went to law school at Pepperdine and decided, you know what, I always think I wanted – I always wanted to be a football coach. And so even though he's married with a young family and tens of thousands of dollars in debt and student loans, he took a shot. He ended up getting a job where he was basically paid, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year to break in. And, you know, he he paid his dues and bounced around everything from coaching in NAIA ball to to coaching in Finland. And uh, it, it worked. I mean, it really, you know, how he got there. And I think you see his influence you know, pretty much everywhere in college football, whether it is, you know, the, the, the offshoot of his offense, which, you know, basically helped Johnny Manziel win a Heisman and become the first freshman there as part of the air raid, you know, Texas A&M goes into the SEC and, and wins 10 games. Uh, you can, you can obviously see it at, uh, at West Virginia, you look down the NCAA leaderboard and many of the top, many of the top, uh, top, passers and top offenses whether it's whether it's from Baylor or you know West Virginia or you know whatnot I mean these are Louisiana Tech you know now Sonny Dykes one of his disciples has taken the Cal job I mean these are all guys who basically were kind of learned under him and I think you even saw the impact it had Bob Stoops when he took over the Oklahoma pro- program which was struggling in the late 90s you know, he, he brought in Leach to, to put in the offense. One year later, they won the national title. So uh, the book really covers, you know, if you want to know what his offense is about, if you want to know how it works, if you want to know kind of how really big-time college football has grown, I think that, uh, you know, you get that perspective from from the book. And, you know, a lot of times coaches' books don't say very much because they're afraid – you know, the coach themselves often holds back and doesn't want to give away secrets. And Leach doesn't hold back ever. And he, de- he definitely didn't hold back and swing your sword. So, Check it out for Amazon or where else can people get it? Yeah, either just search for it on Amazon.com or you can go to my website, BruceFelbin.com, and it'll click you through to, uh, to get the book. Nice. Yeah, check that out. It's good stuff. Good holiday present. So if you want to, you know, someone loves college football, it's a, it's a good read there. And is there an update on the lawsuit that's going on between him and ESPN? Um, you know, there is a little bit of a lot. There is a little bit of an update. I mean, it's progressed and it's picked up a lot of speed, I would say in the last month. Um, you know, it's heading, you know, I would assume it's heading toward trial to the summer. You know, they're going through the process of doing depositions and, and, uh, going through discovery, which basically means they're going through people's emails and text messages. Um, so it'll be an interesting process. Uh, you know, a lot of that probably will not become public, but, um, you know, who knows? I mean, it's a, it's obviously it was a high-profile case, and, you know, the, the, the hardest thing, and I think from people who followed, Craig James obviously left ESPN and decided he was going to try to run for Senate in Texas. Um, you know, you'd sit there and watch him, just from my perspective, watching him on, you know, whether he goes on MSNBC or wherever it was, and they would ask him about, well, you know, there's one particular one. Did you hire, you know, a PR firm to basically smear Mike Leach or did you hire this PR firm? And he says, no, I didn't hire them. And then like a minute or two later, he admits, well, I did hire them. And then he says, but I didn't hire them until after Mike Leach got fired. Well, we have the emails in the back of the swing your sword 
literally in the in, in the appendix that just say that show the actual emails. Well, yeah, you did hire him long before, you know, Leach got fired. Um, so it's strange. It, I mean, it's it's just a it's just a uh, it's a weird case when you have a high profile former you know college announcer who works for the biggest company. I mean, Craig was our you know I worked at ESPN at the same time. Craig was our one of our biggest guys. I mean, he was Kirk Herbstreit before Kirk Herbstreit on game day. And, you know, whenever we would have the BCS rankings come out on every Sunday night, you know, Craig would be on set there. Um, you know, he said he was a high profile guy, did the Thursday night games. And so to have all that kind of tangled in, um, you know, makes for a, makes for a real big mess. And that's what I think you have here. And we'll see how, uh, you know, we'll see how the justice system plays out with this. All right, Bruce. Well, thanks. I'm sorry we kept you a little long there. Good, good stuff. It's uh, it's been too long. So glad to have you come on the show and uh, share your insights on USC. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. All right, and uh, thanks very much, Bruce. Everyone else, thank you very much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. We'll be back a little bit later this week with a Trojan Blast recruiting podcast with Gerard Martinez. Stay tuned for that. And thanks again for tuning in. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.